I'm standing inside the mausoleum complex that celebrates Rumi, the 13th century poet and mystic, where I can hear flute music throughout the hall, which seems appropriate. That was his very favorite instrument. We believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So we're exploring Turkey, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam meet, all in hopes of seeing how the world of faith we live in today came to be, and hopefully understand each other and even God better for having spent time to listen, learn, and be amazed. Let's explore the crossroads of faith. This is episode seven of our 10 episode series about the crossroads of faith in Turkey, an ancient land and a modern nation. Last week, we met with an imam and explored mosques in Istanbul. This week, we're visiting the tomb of Sufi mystic Rumi. He's one of the most popular poets the world over and practiced Sufism. We'll explore the relationship between Islam and Sufism as well as the influence of Rumi on Muslims everywhere, not just in Turkey. We'll speak with scholar Kevin Blankenship about Rumi's life and poetry, and we'll visit with Sheikh Ahmet Sami Kuchuk in Konya, the city where Rumi settled over 800 years ago. We'll also observe the dervishes in their whirling trance. All up next on this episode of In Good Faith. We started the episode in the mausoleum complex of Rumi, where you could hear the sound of flutes playing. How did we get here? Well, it's our seventh day in Turkey, and we arrive in Konya in our white traveling van. Our driver lets us out in the public parking lot, and then we walk down a busy street next to the tracks of the local commuter train. On our right is the complex, officially known as the Mevlana Museum. Westerners refer to Rumi as Rumi, but Turkish adherents know him as Mevlana. Once through the turnstiles, we enter a tranquil courtyard filled with reverent tourists and pilgrims. One low building houses 17 different cells for disciples. In the middle of the complex is the Shadervan, or the ablutions fountain, a place for men to wash their faces and their beards before entering the mausoleum. Women cover their hair, a cultural sign of respect. Then everyone dons blue plastic over their shoes, and we head through a tall archway. The building is shaped in a square. One passage takes us past the coffins, or sarcophagi, of Rumi's family members and other later dervishes. The coffins are covered with brocade, and Rumi's is the grandest of them all. Velvet green cloth embroidered in gold with verses from the Quran. The niche where Rumi's sarcophagus is held is tiled in blue and red, with ribbons of gold somehow interwoven in the pattern. A crowd gathers here, meditating or taking pictures. Everyone speaks in whispers. The poet we know in the U.S. as Rumi was born in present-day Afghanistan. He was born Jalil al-Din Muhammad. But Rumi was added as a nickname, and that's the way that we have known him for centuries. It means an outsider, someone from a foreign place. He came here to present-day Turkey, and we are in his tomb in the town of Konya. This is where he lived, where he philosophized, where he studied, and where he started a school and a movement. Rumi was famous for his poetry, but also for his sermons and for his philosophy of becoming detached from everything that would not last and only becoming attached to that which was heavenly, which for him, of course, was God. If you've read translations of Rumi, you know there's lots of love poems, but what you might not know is the lover that he's talking about, the beloved, is God. And if you get to the heart of Rumi's philosophy, it is love, a oneness of God, tawhid in Arabic. One line I have loved from his poetry says that love is that flame which, as it blazes up, burns away everything except the beloved, the eternal beloved. I like that philosophy. Letting go of the things that aren't going to last and attaching myself spiritually to the things that will last. I spoke with Kevin Blankenship, professor of Arabic in the medieval Middle East, about Rumi, his poetry, and the practice of Sufism. 
Kevin holds a PhD in classical Arabic literature from the University of Chicago and an MA in comparative literature from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He also spent a research year in Morocco as a Fulbright scholar. Rumi was born in a city called Balkh in modern-day Afghanistan. And it's part of a, a wider region within the Persian-speaking world or Farsi-speaking world called Khorasan. And it was one of four cities, give or take, that were sort of cultural hubs at the time for Persian language and culture. He was born into a family of intellectuals, uh, religious legal scholars. So his father was a, a teacher of law at what's called a madrasa, which is a, basically a religious school for training, especially legal scholars in Islam. Rumi was born into this family, and when he was still a young boy, the political situation in the region became unstable. There were rival dynasties that were vying for power. Also, Rumi's father, who again was a teacher of law, religious law, couldn't secure the kind of position that he felt he deserved. So to seek better opportunities and also to avoid the sort of deteriorating political situation, they left. And they were invited by the local ruler under the Seljuk dynasty, which was the kind of Turkish, Persian cultural, but Turkish ethnic ruling dynasty at the time, to go to Konya. His father taught there for two years, but then died. Rumi has begun making a name for himself, both as a teacher of religion and also as a, a popular preacher. And his father was a mystic, and so he kind of initiates Rumi into this. This is something to, to consider here, which is that these relationships between uh, teachers and students often was within families. So a father would teach his son, and then that, that son would teach his sons and so on. And so in this environment, Rumi is making a name for himself as a legal scholar, as a teacher, and as a preacher, and as having kind of a balanced view of where mysticism fits into all that. And along comes a person named Shams of Tabriz. Shams has this effect on Rumi. Shams had been kind of an itinerant wandering around, attending lectures by legal scholars, by philosophers, by teachers, and being unimpressed by them. He was looking for kind of a Sufi sheikh, a Sufi master. And he didn't ever quite find what he was looking for, but the closest thing he came to was his relationship with Rumi. One source has it by legend that they kind of sat together just staring at each other for a while before they ever started talking. And then when they did start talking, they started debating about previous Sufi masters, and what style of Sufism was the best. And for Shams, a focus on God and on love of God should be the guiding thing that informs your mystical Sufi practice. At the time, Rumi probably believed that, but he, he balanced it out with sort of more legalistic concerns that mainstream Islam, so-called mainstream Islam, would have considered important. So this changed Rumi's outlook dramatically. And he went from being a monkish person in the sense of being focused on sort of the outward practices that you do to be a mystic to more of a mystic in the sense that you're focused on the inward experience that you're having, especially that you're having with the divine. Which is so interesting that someone who is going more and more inward to connect with God also seems to have this outward charisma that has reached, a, here we are talking about someone who wrote poetry and gave religious lectures in the 1200s. So what is it about Rumi that, for instance, the people in Konya, who, who wants to claim him as theirs and say, oh. we're so proud of him because of what? Yeah, I mean, to, to this day, there is a, uh, a mausoleum complex devoted to, to Rumi. And people will come there in residence and study. They come there, obviously, to visit, to do cultural visits and things like that. You know, Rumi is considered a, a native son of, of Turkey. Or like, there is, there are at least two Rumis. There's the historical Rumi, and then there's the sort of legendary Rumi. Uh -huh. Apocryphal uh, story. Yeah, and, and very soon after Rumi's death, this hagiographical literature, you know, praising him, telling legends about him, kind of grew up around him. And so you have stories, for example, of him, you know, fasting for long periods of time, 40 days without anything but bread and water. You know, these sort of heroic acts of, of piety that are probably exaggerated. But for that reason, he's, he's still well known today. And um, as you said, anyone who's sort of a charismatic figure, the magnetism that you exert on other people, partly because of your devotion, just in a general sense, partly because of the, the discipline that you exert in practicing your religion. All of these things have an effect on other people that they want to follow you. So it's ironic that 
Rumi at the time, one of the shifts that happened to Rumi after his relationship with Shams is that Rumi tried to withdraw from public life more. And this was something that Shams kind of got across to him, which is that your practice of being a religious person, of being a mystic, shouldn't be attached to other people's praise and esteem for you. There's a whole saying that says, lost in translation. Right. That we could apply maybe to any translation. So when Rumi's poetry is translated into English, we've heard that some of it, I don't want to say sanitized, but that some of the translations have minimized at least some of the Islamic influence or religious teachings. And so I'm really curious what in the English-speaking world we have received and how is it different from the original text? You know, Rumi is one of these figures and, you know, he's part of one of these Eastern traditions that has been, as you said, kind of repackaged for a Western audience. <laughs> and there's a debate to be had there. Is it better to know Rumi but only in part or is it better not to know him? You know, because there's a lot in his poetry that is specific to Islam, the vocabulary, practice, cultural references, things like that, which, you know, would be lost on Western readers who aren't already familiar with that tradition. So a good example is some readers or some listeners will know that Brad Pitt has a, uh, <laughs> has a, a tattoo on his right bicep of a line by Rumi. And the line that he has, it's probably the best known line by Rumi. And it says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And that's probably, again, Rumi's best known line in the West. And it's in the English of Coleman Barks, who more than any particular translator has, uh, has made Rumi a known entity in the West. He also doesn't know Persian. So there's this debate among scholars about whether or not he's actually translating. He's taking other people's English translations and kind of recasting them to make them more poetic. Interesting. And it reads well. It reads well. So he has the poet's ear. That he does. He does. Coleman Barks' English strips down a lot of, a lot of the Muslim references which again is, I guess, understandable because if you're packaging it for a Western audience and you assume that most of that audience isn't, wouldn't be familiar with these references, let alone just with Persian itself as a language. So if you'll indulge me, if I can read the Persian, it's, a, it's a very brief couplet and then um, an English translation that's a bit closer to the Persian. So the Persian says, As islam burun sohraist, mara bemian an faza sodaist, so in English, a closer rendering of that would be, outside unbelief and Islam, there is a desert. In the midst of this space, we have longed for love. When the mystic arrives there, he prostrates his head in prayer. As here, there is no place for either unbelief or Islam. There's technical terms here that a Muslim would recognize. For example, the term kufr, which is what's translated in, in Coleman Barks' English as wrongdoing. It's a more strict sense than that. Kufr refers specifically to you disbelieve in sort of the basic tenets of Islam, the belief that there's only one God, the belief in scripture as the word of God, things like that. So it's a much more specific meaning. The word Islam itself referring to the religion, but also to the general sense of like someone submits their will to God overall. Bowing one's head, you know, it says once the mystic gets to this, and the term mystic even, adef, a, a Gnostic, someone who knows God, like kind of in this intimate way that Sufism is supposed to, uh, to foster. When that person arrives at this field out beyond ideas of kufr and Islam, he bows his head in prayer. And this specifically is referring to the Muslim form of prostration. Where when bow right, down several times. Right. And Right. So all of these things are specific references within Islam that Coleman Barks, rightly or wrongly, strips away. That does make it more accessible to a Western audience because then you don't have to footnote all of these things like I just did. And it also fits on like a single person's bicep. <laughs> Depends on the bicep. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So Rumi's great works, his best known work is called the Masnaviye Manavi, which means spiritual couplets. It's a very large six-volume work considered so popular in Persian 
especially from like a religious standpoint, not just an aesthetic literary mm-hmm. standpoint, that people call it the Quran in Persian, the Quran wow. in the Persian language, mm. which, you know, for a, a pious Muslim might be an overstatement. The, the Quran is the Quran. But, but, it, but it also shows the religious influence showing up. Absolutely. There. Which is, you know, back to the point about Rumi kind of being packaged for a Western audience. It's important to remember Rumi was a Muslim, and, uh, and that shows up very clearly in, in these works. So it's in this work, the Masnavi Manavi, that he puts into poetry kind of religious principles. He uses vivid imagery and stories to kind of get them across. He also has an entire collection of poetry devoted to Shams of Tabriz, this kind of partner in truth where the two of them would debate and talk and sort of rub up against each other's opinions to try and figure out their relationship with God. He devoted an entire book of poetry to Shams because for him, Shams was like a conduit for God, a conduit for deity. Almost through an intellectual but spiritual, not sparring, but maybe that's it, a sparring partner to trade things back and forth. Interesting. That's right, yeah. Rumi makes him into a quasi-godlike figure where he devotes poetry to him and, and through Shams is able to see God. So often you'll see, you know, at the end of one of Rumi's poems, you know, a nod to Shams and say, Shams, this is you that I'm talking to, or this is you that I'm talking about. But like by extension, he's also talking to or about God. Mm-hmm. It's also important to know that Shams means sun, like the sun that shines in the sky. So this image comes up a lot in Rumi's poetry, where like he's staring at the sun, but he can't see the sun. The, the, the sun's light illumines everything else that he sees, and the sun is this person, Shams, but also an expression of, of, of God on earth. So the, the Ghazal, it's a 14-line uh, poem and, you know, has already been written as, as a genre for a little while, so it's kind of a fixed form, and he, he is known for that. He's also known for couplets, which were a favorite way of writing either epigrams, kind of short, punchy. You can you can link a bunch of couplets together and form a long narrative. So it's it's a very versatile form either way. You can have it be short or long. Here's a, I believe this is a ghazal, where Rumi is talking about how above and beyond acquired knowledge, which uh, in Arabic and Persian is elm, Sufis wanted kind of an intuitive and experiential way of knowing God, which they called marifa. Um, and this isn't just achieved, this kind of, experiential knowing isn't just achieved by studying the law, but by loving God. Mm. And so this is a poem that expresses that. Love resides not in learning, not in knowledge, not in pages and pamphlets. Wherever the debates of men may lead, that is not the lover's path. Love's branches arch over pre-eternity. Its roots, you see, delve in forever a tree resting not on soil, nor trunk, nor even heaven's throne. We deposed reason, punished passion with the lash, for such reason and such morals were degrading to such glory. You see, so long as you long, you idolize longing, but become the beloved, and then no being longs. The incessant hopes and fears of the seafaring man float upon planks, but obliterate both planks and seafarer, and only submersion remains. Shams of Tabriz, the sea is you, the pearl too, because your being head to toe is nothing but the mystery of the maker. This is not your spiritual tradition, as I understand. Yeah. But what in this poetry do you find that connects you to God that you adopt as an addition to your spirituality? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm always aware, try to be aware that, you know, this isn't my tradition. And so when I, when I speak of it, you know, I speak as someone, uh, as an outsider, but with great respect and, and reverence for these traditions. Um, for me, there, there are a lot of universal categories in religion. This is a tension, you know, all religions experience, which is, you know, what about it is universal versus what about it is bound by time, place, language, mm. culture, all that kind of thing. The focus on God kind of as the centerpiece is something that resonates with me. Also, the idea that God isn't something that you think about just every once in a while. Your religion is a muscle. And if you don't, practice it, then, then it atrophies. So that's something else that I get from, from the poetry and then from the tradition itself, Sufism. Beyond that, I love poetry and I always have. 
from a young age. And there's something about poetry because it uses the fact that individual words can carry more than one meaning and that they have sound in and of themselves. It exploits those properties of language in a way that expresses the inexpressible. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. At the mausoleum, I was able to speak with several pilgrims who had come to visit the complex. Our guide Lutfi translated for us on the spot, but we've had these interviews translated once we got home. You'll hear them read by an actor. I wonder if you could tell me what brings you to Rumi's tomb today. I'm coming from Istanbul. My aim is to visit Rumi's past and his tomb in a way to earn merits from Allah. So I came to see our history, to experience our history. Have you known about Rumi all your life? Both religion and poetry, because the two are connected. In other words, his life is both together with his poetry and he is a visual person. So it is the same. People all around the world know about Rumi, even in the U.S. where I'm from. Are people here in Konya, people here in Turkey, proud of him? All Turks feel honored when people know Rumi and come to visit us. Whether it is America or Germany, we are always proud when people from all nations want to know Rumi and get to know him. The spiritual atmosphere here impresses us a lot. I've been here before. Arhan, I'm very happy to meet you and your son, Emir. What brings you to Konya and to Rumi's tomb today? The spiritual atmosphere here impresses us a lot. I've been here before. When you think of Rumi, what comes to mind? How do you remember him? The first thing that comes to my mind? Spirituality. You know his words, come no matter what you are. So regardless of people's religion or anything else, there is a spiritual atmosphere here. There are people coming from many provinces and foreign countries, so it is very nice. It was something different for us too. I hope we will come here again. So he is known as being part of the Sufi part of Islam, but it, are all people in Islam familiar with Rumi and, and like his teachings? In general, all the people I know know and respect Rumi. Although they remember him especially during Ramadan, his words are very famous. I mean, generally all the people living here know Mevlana and his spirituality. But of course, although not always, people usually remember him during Ramadan. Ben Adam Steve? Muammar Yavuz. I'm from Konya. You came from America. Welcome. It's an honor to have you here. You are our guests. May you always come back. May there be world peace. May there be peace for humanity. As you know, we had an earthquake disaster in the past months. 14 million of our people were under the earthquake, but we are healing our wounds. We would like to thank you for all the humanitarian aid that all the nations of the world have shown to us, to our earthquake victims. I am glad you came. Thank you. Thank you. This is Konya, the heart of Konya. This is the center of Rumi, Sufi Rumi. It's an honor. Thank you for being here. All that matters is that there is peace in the world. Our biggest wish right now is world peace. There can be religion, race, civilization, but humanity is important. That is what we want. This is what we want in this blessed land. We had three days of religious holiday. We celebrated Ramadan. We want to embrace the people. This is what our faith commands for humanity. I'm glad you came and honored us. What brought you here today? Why did you come here today? Is this an important place to you? Rumi is an important person, first for us as people from Konya, then for Turkey, then for the Islamic world, and most importantly, for world peace. Because he says come. He says come no matter what you are. He says our lodge is open to everyone, no matter what you are. People pray when they come here if they have prior knowledge of Rumi. If they don't have knowledge, they learn from someone who does. Rumi cannot be understood by seeing this place only once. 
It is necessary to know his books, the government at that time, the relations between people at that time. It is not possible to compare the circumstances then and now. At that time, the conditions were different than now. So, so even though things were different back then, the words of Rumi, do they still have meaning today? They do. That's why he says, yesterday was yesterday, my dear. We need to learn new things, say new things. He says, yesterday was yesterday. Look to the future today. After our visit to Rumi's tomb, we also had the incredible opportunity to meet with Sheikh Ahmed Sami Kuchik, who is the head of the Whirling Dervishes. Maybe like me, you'd heard of whirling dervishes as a child and imagined something between a dust devil in the deserts of the American Southwest or some wandering prophet of the Middle East. I was excited to ask Sheikh Ahmed all my questions about who the whirling dervishes are and how they experienced the form of worship which they call Sema. Our conversation allowed me to think about what a mystic is and what they're looking for, an unmediated experience with God nothing in between God and the believer, a divine unity. Sheikh Ahmed invited us to his home in a wooded part of the city. His house sits back from the street, and as we walk up the sidewalk, we can see his family has chicken coops on the left. A very large, very friendly Anatolian Mastiff inspects us as we leave our shoes on the front steps. We enter the home and settle into the Sheikh's study for conversation. The sheikh is a tall, bearded man with a hearty laugh and black eyes. He has a fire blazing in the wood stove for us on this cloudy spring day. I asked him about the relationship between Sufism and Islam. It would be correct to express it as a whole. Islam, or rather the truth we call Sufism, can be described as living the Islamic values in their finest details understanding and giving meaning to what and why we do things, living the religion of Islam or the Islamic faith in its entirety, flesh and bone. Sufism is perhaps the modern name for a Mohammedan way of life. It's a way of life based on the teachings of the Prophet. Because over the passing years, people have distanced themselves from the essence, truth, beauty, goodness, and pleasantness of the religion, and what they call religion has become entangled in many troubles in our time. Allah says that the life, property, honor, pride, dignity, chastity of everyone, all human beings, regardless of their language, religion, race, sect, are haram, forbidden, to one another. You cannot touch them. Allah loves His servants so much that he doesn't allow anyone to harm them. In fact, he loves them so much that he has forbidden even speaking ill of others behind their backs, describing it as eating the flesh of the dead. When Allah loves his servants so much, people today hurt so many hearts and humiliate them for worldly gains, and that is not religion. The Prophet says, the best among people are those who serve others. The great ones of this path, like Yunus Emre and the great Sufi masters, say that if you have hurt someone's heart, it's not the prayers you have performed. Allah has created His servants, all of us, you, me, everyone. You are American, we are Turkish. Another person is from Sudan, another is from England. It was not our choice. Allah has created all of us and has not interfered with any of us in this world. We are free. We are obligated to do what we desire. Some of us are Christian, some are Jewish, some are Muslim, some are Buddhist. What befits a human being, a person of humanity, a person of faith, is to continue their life in the way they desire. I'd like to ask about Rumi, and I'm curious what he means to Islam. Let me express it in his own words. Mevlana described himself as follows. This is a famous couplet of Mevlana. I am the slave of the Quran and the dust of the feet of Muhammad Mustafa, peace be upon him. If someone mentions me and says something other than this, I am complaining about both what is mentioned and the one who mentioned it, says Mevlana. <laughs> 
Mevlana is a lover of the Prophet Muhammad, and he is such a beautiful example for us. Today, in his works, we can learn and practice that love, that devotion to loving Allah. If you love the religion, if you love Allah, you will live it. He showed us the way to live and worship Allah with love. That's why he is so valuable to us and to the world. Because we lost that love. When we read about the dervishes, we read about twirling and going in circles. But it's much more than a dance. Can you tell me what is happening in the minds and the spirits of those who are, are part of that ritual? What you see is only the dervishes whirling on a stage. Let me explain in parts because you cannot remember it all. But for a person who wants to learn Sema, they are told that this path is very difficult. Think carefully. It is very difficult to turn back. If you want, let's start, but this path is truly difficult, so think seriously. Afterwards, if the person wants to learn Sema, if they want to enter the Mevlevi order, a rigorous background check is done on that person. Do they have a history of theft? Are they descended from a noble family or not? Who are their parents? Have they committed any disgraceful crimes? Their weaknesses, their morals, their religious habits? I mean, a really serious and detailed investigation is carried out. If the result of this investigation is positive, then the necessary training for this person to learn the Sema will begin. The duration of this training can vary between a minimum of six months and two years, depending on the condition of the dervish. For a sheikh, uh, can you marry? Can you have a family? Of course. We do not refrain from anything in life. We get married, engage in trade. We do things that will allow us to make a living because this is what we are told to do. There is absolutely no mentality of sitting in a corner and saying, someone bring us food, let's eat. But we engage in trade, we engage in agriculture, we engage in animal husbandry. For example, I myself have a very intensive trade in farming and animal husbandry. I produce milk, I am a milk producer, I breed dairy cows. In fact, I am one of the largest milk producers in Konya. But what we earn through worldly pursuits, we put them aside, not in our hearts. We distribute them to those in need for the sake of Allah. So, milking cows is hard work. It's very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult. I had a job milking cows when I was very young, and it made me decide I should go to college instead. In this process, hunger, sleeplessness, and various physical services are imposed on the dervish, which become means for their spiritual maturity and attainment of perfection. When you complete this, you distance yourself from many bad desires and cravings on a carnal level. And as human beings, the noblest of creation, the essence of the universe, the essence of all created beings, you make significant progress towards becoming a human being in the sight of God. You are born as a human, but that alone doesn't make you human. That's why a human being is the essence of the universe. Everything, absolutely everything, is for humans. A homeless person, a drug addict, a person in a bad condition lying on the streets in America is also my concern. A hungry child in Ethiopia is also my concern. Or the unfortunate people in Myanmar are also my concern. We are humans. Our mothers and fathers are the same. We are all children of Adam and Eve. Even if you are American, our mothers and fathers are one. We are siblings. That's why being human is our priority. Mevlana says, we are all one, one single person, one pearl. He says, if you break the pitchers filled with water, all the waters become one and flow away. <laughs> <laughs> 
The secret of that picture is what makes one of us American, one Turkish, one Russian, one English. These are secrets. These are the outer shells around us. However, the reality of the matter is, when that picture is broken, when we remove those shells, what is inside is water, and all the waters become one, unite, and flow. Your right eye looks sideways at your left eye. Why? asks Mevlana. He tells us, we are all one. Everything is in this river of unity. Let us all get into that river and be in that river. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. At this point, our crew has to change batteries for the cameras. And so Sheikh Ahmed and I sit and stare at each other. Our translator's busy elsewhere. So I took out my phone and showed Sheikh Ahmed a picture of my wife and children and grandchildren. And he really lit up and wanted to share about his family as well. This is my family. Mashallah. Lovely. May Allah Almighty save them. I am praying that Allah will save them. May they be happy and together. May they have a good and long life. I have two daughters. Alhamdulillah, thank God. I have a wife whom I love very much. We are a family of four. Yes, it's very nice to be close. Yeah. Hmm. It's also important to be close to God, too. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes our children make us get close to God because we're asking for answers. <laughs> okay. The SEMA training was really the breaking point of my life. For me, it was the end of a period and the beginning of a life that was completely new, more beautiful, more humane, more merciful, more decent, and closer to Allah. It was really the beginning of my life. I used to have nothing to do with any humanitarian and spiritual values. But then I came across so many humanitarian and spiritual things that I couldn't believe it myself. In the ritual, with the music and with the turning, what is happening in the heart of the person who is turning? Is that a form of prayer or meditation? First of all, let me express this. The elders say, how can you fill a pitcher with the whole sea? To what extent can you explain spiritual matters with words? Not possible. During the Sema, every time we whirl around, we chant Allah, 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 Allah. Allah, 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 Allah. Maybe for close to an hour, the name of our loved one. Sema is Dikir which means remembering the name of Allah. We are in such a state of whirling and moving by chanting the name of our beloved, wishing to be close to him. We have received all this training and discipline. So there's nothing wrong in giving examples, say the elders. Without comparing Allah to anything, not sure how you can translate this, but it's like a mother hugging her child. Like two lovers reuniting after not seeing each other for a long time. We hope to experience that moment of reunion, that moment of ecstasy and rapture, by repeatedly calling out the name of our beloved. Mevlana says, Sema is the food of lovers. And he says, their life depends on the Sema. So he is referring to us. When we see the ritual, one hand is facing up, another facing down. What is the meaning there? That's correct. Our right hand is raised up and our fingers are held close together. Metaphorically, we receive and gather the mercy from Allah in the palm of our hand without missing or dropping it. The fingers of our left hand are held loosely. This means that we give the truth that we receive from Allah to everyone by serving them without discriminating against anyone or anything. I read that music was very important to Rumi and that he loved the flute. 
Tell me about the musical part of the ritual. Music is very important in the Mevlevi tradition, especially ney, I mean, rather than flute. Flute is actually a different type of instrument. There is a string instrument called rebab. It is also very important in the Mevlevi tradition. If I give medicine to a child, he will not take it thinking it is bitter. But if I put it in a honey syrup, he will take it. Things that are true, that are right. Most people find it difficult and they will not do them. But through music, Mevlana was able to convey the truth, the right thing to the people of that period and to us in the following periods. Because music appeals to the heart and makes it grow older. It brings the heart closer to Allah. Probably not even a day goes by without us listening to Mevlevi music, which we call Ayin-i-Sharif. What brings you joy in your spiritual practice? Sincerely speaking, the only thing that makes me happy in this world is to be in the Sema, to do Sema. I wish I could always perform Sema. I say this with all my heart. Are there particular verses written by Rumi that are very important to you? Of course. As I mentioned earlier, just like Mevlana expressed himself, I am the slave of the Quran and the dust of the feet of Muhammad Mustafa. This is one of the most important statements of Mevlana. There are many sayings of Mevlana. We can talk about and explain them for maybe two days, three days, four days. Another important saying of Mevlana, why all this strife, all this fighting, all this violence, discord and war? We are all children of the same mother and father. Break your pots and see how the waters become one. We are all one, one single pearl. We were able to attend a session of the Whirling Dervises in Cappadocia earlier on our trip. I hesitate to say it was a performance, though of course there were many of us gathered there to witness the ceremony. It seemed instead like an intimate gesture to allow us to be there with them in their worship. The dance is held in a cave that we descend into. The venue had experienced an electrical shortage, and so the entire experience passed in semi-darkness, one lamp for the entire round stage. The audience is seated in a semicircle at the edges, and then nine men file into the theater, all dressed in tall conical hats with black cloaks over their white robes. Four of the men are the instrumentalists. Five of them will twirl in the sacred trance. The five dancers drop their cloaks to the side and then spread onto the stage floor all in white, and then they start to turn, to whirl round and around for almost an hour. I just got to see for the very first time what we call in the West whirling dervishes, and it's part of a tradition of Sufi mysticism that includes a very ceremonial dance with types of singing, with types of music, and a reading from a section of the Quran. I've never seen this before. I've just heard that they twirl and twirl and don't get dizzy and fall down, but it's actually part of religious mysticism of the Sufi tradition of seeking higher knowledge. The whirling dervishes, dervishes comes from someone who stands at the gate wanting to go through to get more knowledge, to go to a higher state. They can perform this with a music soundtrack, but I was really thrilled that this was a night where the performance included instrumentation and live singers, really high-trained singers. We were grateful that we were allowed to be part of this dervish ceremony, but that got me thinking that I had read that at one point in recent Turkish history, those ceremonies or performances had been outlawed. So I asked the sheikh. After the First World War, there was a time when Sufis were not allowed to practice publicly, if I understand. Is that changed today? You're able to do the ritual as you like today, freely? Let me explain it. During the Republican period in the 1930s, the dervish lodges were already closed down. Until the 1950s or even 1955, almost no SEMA performances took place. And according to the current law, it is still forbidden 
because they haven't amended the law since then. For example, wearing a hat was compulsory at the time. That law still exists, but nobody wears a hat. As far as I remember, in the 1960s, when the wife of an American ambassador visited Konya, she wanted to see the whirling dervishes. However, they could hardly find three or four dervishes performing Sema. The wife of that ambassador told them to organize more of these performances and that it would be much better. Since then, Sema ceremonies have been organized under the name of the events commemorating Mevlana, almost doubling and even tripling in size every year until today. Currently, they are organized by the government itself. So this tradition has continued for 800 years since Rumi. Will it continue another 800 years? It will. I mean, it will continue until the doomsday, until the end of the world, because Mevlana has been a panacea for so many people for 800 years. Today, many people from all around the world come here because they have found the truth, love, beauty, and sincerity in Mevlana. Let me try to explain. In many beliefs, the concept of death is quite challenging to describe. Mevlana described death so nicely when he said, when true lovers pass away, they do so in a pleasant manner, melting away like sugar. True lovers never die. It is the animal that perishes. When we first envisioned going to Turkey, I had one of those impossible wishes in my mind, which was, oh, if only we could find out about the whirling dervishes. Because as a kid, I had heard that phrase somewhere and had no idea what it meant. <laughs> whirling dervishes actually was the name of a ride that the carnies would bring to the, the Calvert <laughs> County Fair. And, you know, you would ride it and get, like, neck yes. uh, jolted. But that's my image of a whirling dervish. Yeah, not the same spiritual experience. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I too, when I realized we can go see this ancient practice, right, that was, as we heard, exiled for a while yeah. within Turkey is now being practiced again under the aegis of the government. And then to be able to talk to the head of the training and overseeing of the dervishes of these Sufi mystics. Yeah. And maybe we should pause just a minute and say, what is a Sufi? Yeah, and I think for a lot of us who know a little bit about Islam, we may have heard of Shias and Sunnis, right? But Sufis are this, as we're kind of told by Kevin Blankenship, are this mystical arm of Islam. And I think it's interesting, this idea of mystics. I mean, you're really fascinated by mystics. Why is that, Steve? What's the draw? Yeah, well, it was really meaningful for me to sort of get to a definition which is an unmediated experience with God, a direct spiritual experience with the divine. Yeah. Which means not just I go to church and the pastor says something or, or that I feel, well, I've now been connected to God because of what the priest did. But that experience, I have had a few of those moments where I just felt in touch with what I call the divine, with the spirit of God as I would describe it. And sometimes it came with a particular kind of knowledge or an assurance and so I have a hint of what that means. But these are people who are pursuing that on a daily basis and want to, as Rumi says, the beloved. I always thought he wrote great love poetry. <laughs> right. And it turns out that most of it, he's using the terminology of lovers to talk about a relationship that is so intimate with God. Right. And I think for Westerners, we're used to maybe imagining God as a, a father mm. or God as a rock we have these different ways of thinking of him, but this idea of God as intimate with us as a lover might be, uh, I think, is kind of mind-blowing for, for a lot of us and might make us a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, on the face of it, we think, oh, can, we can't, that sounds a slightly sensual or sexual, and yeah. surely God has nothing to do with those things. Right. And yet, uh... <laughs> actually, here we are in our human experience. Right. And I could not have been more delighted than to meet the person that Sheikh Ahmed Sami Kuchik ended up to be. Yes, he was uh, He was very generous with us. And we don't have it here, but he actually gave us a tour of his home, mm -hmm. right? And he even gifted you a present, which was sort of unexpected. Yeah, on, uh, just on our way out, one thing, we had gone upstairs and he has a special room 
that's dedicated for him to turn. Yep. And perform this all by himself. So we're leaving, and he calls me over to his stairwell, and there are all of these ceramic squares with dervishes in different positions. And through the translator, he says, which of these speaks to your heart? He said, then you should have it. And he takes it off his wall, hands it to me. Yeah. And it's in my office right now today. Right now. Yeah. Here, here, where we produce in good faith. Yeah. So Rumi's tomb. Yes. <laughs> I I remember walking around going, what am I looking at? I don't quite get it. The sarcophagus were confusing to me um, at first. Like They were at interesting angles. Yes, and they had hats on them, which I didn't realize were hats. Um, those sort of wrapped, knotted things at the head. Yeah, the music, I don't, I don't understand the words as sung, but I understand music and the feeling of the music. And I also understand the idea of reaching for a contact with God. And I also understand the concept of wanting to lift myself up and arrive at a higher spiritual plane and be a better person and be enabled to do more good, to spread more good in the world. Make sure and check out the In Good Faith YouTube channel for videos of the whirling dervishes in Cappadocia. And next week, we'll have Kevin Blankenship back to discuss more of Rumi's poetry in a special book club edition. We'll be joined by another Rumi scholar, Rasul Sorkabi, to read and ponder the collection Swallowing the Sun, translated by Franklin D. Lewis. Check out a copy from your library and join us. Many thanks to Kevin Blankenship and Sheikh Ahmet Sami Kuchik for speaking with us. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Emma Engebretsen, Leah King, Katarina Martinic, and Ashton Rowan. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips and Joshua Fouts. And thanks to our voice actors for this episode, Dane Keckley, who voiced the interviews at Rumi's Tomb, and Roger Hoffman, who voiced Sheikh Ahmet. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience of faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a comment or review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith. <laughs>